Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, May 24th, 2020. Right. Uh, and uh, it's a pretty nice day. Surprisingly nice day. Yeah. Uh, Memorial Day weekend, uh, which has been rainy up till now, but here we go. Sort of sunny, almost 70. Getting to summer slowly. I think we'll get it in the next few days. This is getting to be a hard job. What, what is? Tamsin and Dan read the paper. Because? There's nothing in the paper. Oh, and yet we have, we're chock full of interesting stories. Don't mislead people. I don't people. know. I don't know. The paper gets smaller and smaller and, I and smaller. And they only want to talk about, you know. Well, COVID-19. But, that, but there is interesting things to say about that. But I think you should breathe easy, then. When you think about today's podcast. And why do I say that? Because the story that jumped out to both of us was an article in the Wall Street Journal about the healing power of proper breathing. Yes. Uh, I was you know, struck by this article. Surprised? Yeah. It was basically, well, you... you I, I'm, I'm not surprised because I've been doing the yoga thing yeah. for you, you many years now. Well, and uh, the... Breathing is an essential aspect of yoga. Mm -hmm. And I had found that uh, it really changed uh, my life. Really? The breathing. Yeah. How so? I breathe better. Do you? And consequently, I sleep better. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think I'm healthier. All right. Well, just so we're... And, and listen to this. Yeah. Uh, in this article, which is written by James Nestor, yeah. the greatest indicator of lifespan... Um, in this uh, in a study, right? Actually, done in the 1980s. Oh, well, it's that's... nothing new. Right. Okay, a 70-year research project. The greatest indicator of lifespan wasn't genetics, diet, or amount of daily exercise. It was lung capacity. Right. And so you say right, and yet uh, you know. Well, I, I can believe that, but what was interesting to me is that there are breathing techniques that are described in the article that supposedly contribute mightily to lung capacity, and that's to me the connection that hadn't been made. And in right. particular, what most of us yeah. misunderstand breathing as passive, something we just do. Yeah, it turns out that uh, how we breathe matters well what they just so we can get to it what they're saying is the what this person's saying is the right way to breathe is number one through your nose yes your which mouth. they tell you in yoga all the time right. mouths yeah. are for kissing uh, noses are for breathing you say that in yoga yes all right i'm not my a teacher anyway not big a fan of yoga but i can't argue with that and uh number one breathe through your nose number two take deep breaths to the extent that uh, you're expanding your lung capacity and you might get to the point that you're breathing six times a minute. Uh, that would be the ideal. It turns out uh, that we've been, you know, evolving over time yeah. to breathe less well. Right. That our, our mouths have gotten smaller. smaller right. And our sinuses have gotten smaller. Right. Okay, so, but... Uh, unlike a lot of other things that might be wrong with you, you can reformulate your your lung capacity. Right. You can work well, on Well, look, I, I actually do think my lung capacity is pretty good because it's something that you work on in exercise. We used to call it VO2 capacity. We were mm -hmm. rowing in college, and mm -hmm. that was the difference between being successful as an athlete and not, at least in that sport. Um, 
So reading is essential, and the, the things that they describe it, it's beneficial to range from uh, sort of mental aspects of your life to wear and tear on your body, generally speaking, and a lot of uh, bodily functions, including uh, your sex life. Uh, right. Breathing they enhances say, they your say, sex say life. nose breathing yeah. is apparently good for your sex. All right. So this is, uh, to I, I, me, I, you know. an appropriate headline. This has to be our lead story. All you have to do is breathe through your nose and deeply, and a lot of things in your life are going to turn around, going to do a direct 180. I mean, you're just saying that in a mocking way. No, I'm not mocking really it. I you actually know, believe it. I'm, I'm 100% behind this. It really, uh, it really came home to me. As I said, I've been improving my breathing, working on my breathing for yeah. years, yeah. and I think it's important. And, yeah. you know, and I sort of feel like it's also helped. I have no scientific substantiation for this. Right. But I view my blood pressure is better. It says you no. It's in the article. It okay. says, says if you if you go to this kind of breathing, it lowers your blood pressure. Well, anyway, 10 to 20 uh, I mean, my blood pressure has improved yeah. greatly over the last fifteen no, years. It, it, but um, but uh, it, it came home to me. You know, uh, you were having some uh, respiratory issues, and uh, Dixon, yeah, you know, our family nurse, yeah. Said uh, was said something about, you know, when you're sick like this, you don't breathe deeply enough to cleanse your lungs, mm-hmm. and something you know it's just ding 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 ding, you know that breathing has beneficial aspects. Yeah, I believe. Okay, uh, in that sense, yeah, uh, as a cleansing effect, uh, as well as distributing the oxygen to the blood flow as mm-hmm. well. Okay. So it's really important. And so, again, you know, really um, getting exercise, being outdoors uh, really yeah, is breathe, key, I think, to consciously breathe through so your many nose aspects as deeply as possible. To the extent that you can and, and that nose breathing, again, it, it, it delivers the oxygen much more efficiently yeah. to your bloodstream by breathing through your nose, okay, which reduces wear and tear mm-hmm. on uh, your whole uh, lung mechanism. Okay. So there you have it. All right, so that's, that's our... That's a big improvement Yeah, that's, that we can, can all listen, make. I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. So then now we go to the a few COVID stories, which are unavoidable, but uh, the one that you have here isn't necessarily COVID-related so much as the idea of bringing pandemic-type diseases to uh, populations with have no immunity. And well, it's epidemics history. as agents of historical change. Right. There you okay? go. It's an article written by Jared Diamond. Yeah. And as you noticed, yeah. okay, it's, you know, it's just a follow-up on his basic thesis from his book of uh, guns, Oh, he germs, wrote John, Guns, Germs, Germs yes. All right. I okay. didn't know he wrote it. I yeah. just knew it was the same thesis. So, uh, yeah. you know, um, so there you have it. And, uh, and the idea is, you know, what kind of huge changes... Uh, do things like epidemics make? Right. And uh, his his general thesis is that um, the success of what he calls Eurasian civilization is not due so much to ingenuity as opportunity and necessity. Well, he's he, more than I don't know if I would describe that the success, but so much as. Their ability to the conquer, dominance, yeah, the, dom- the dominance. Their ability to conquer these territories that they right. visited and invaded, that the explorers went to, had to do with the fact, as much as anything, they carried germs with them. The and Europeans it, carried germs that the native people couldn't deal with. And it's over and over and over again. Right. And uh, you know, in uh, I was surprised the way he summed up uh, 
you know, the um, taking over of the New World right. of Native Americans. Right. Okay, and that was a smallpox right. thing, right? The um, Native Americans had no resistance to smallpox. Wipe no, them out. they had never been exposed. He said so. When you know, when we think of um, dispossessing the Native Americans, we're thinking usually like uh, guns and bows and arrows, etc. No, they're dying in their beds, right. in you know, in their teepees or whatever, um, because uh, um, the uh, Europeans who come over have a resistance to smallpox. And that's because of the domesticated animals they right. grow up with. All of these, most of these diseases are the result. We, we get them from the animals. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the Native Americans uh, didn't have they, large right. domesticated animals that they cuddled with the way we do. Only llamas. Right. And uh, so, you know, Europe had experienced more of this, had experienced the smallpox from the animals and brought it over. Similar thing happens uh, in South America, right? Yeah, the city Aztecs and the Incas, all right, making possible uh, the conquest of Cortez and Pizarro. Um, so, you know, it's uh, that was kind of eye opening that uh, the whole concept of just uh, wiping these civilizations out right. and having, you know, dominance over them or superiority well, it, it, it does work over the, them. It did work the other way in some areas, in Africa, for example. When uh, the so-called conquerors came over there and they could not handle malaria. Right. But quinine solves that problem. Well, it did. And, uh, okay. Until it solved and, the problem, uh, they couldn't handle it. You know, right. And then they're off to the races. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, also there's an interesting mention of all these reverberations, including linguistically. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, why, you know, he points out that... Uh, for instance, if uh, you're thinking about the great, um, the the civilizations that produce, like uh, you know, they're uh, the cave paintings, etc. Right. Uh, presumably, uh, those native populations had a language, and yet there's no remnants of it in our modern languages today. Mm-hmm. And so, why not? Because they got wiped out and by uh, germ carrying. Uh, yeah. Um, and, you know, so it changes, you know, not just uh, civilization, but, uh, you know, right. how you know, the languages and everything. So that was very interesting. And there's more, you know, interesting details in there. That's by James Nestor in the Wall Street Journal. Well, just to get to, you know, COVID-19, the, the pandemic we're dealing with right now, uh, there was an article by Mark Lilla, who's a professor of humanities at Columbia that appeared in uh, today's times, which expresses a view uh, that I've been happy to share. Uh, the headline of the article is, No One Knows What's Going to Happen, uh, which seems trivial and obvious. But if, but if you think about the implications of it and take it quite seriously and take it to a logical extreme, it causes you to think differently about everything you've been hearing about COVID-19. And that's because, as Lilla points out, uh, people have the need, the overwhelming desire to hear what's going to happen to them. And therefore, they encourage, if not demand, predictions, and those predictions inevitably are spotty. And that's the world we're living in. As Lilla puts it, it is a truth that humans have never been able to accept that they cannot predict the future. 
People facing immediate danger want to hear an authoritative voice that they can draw assurance from. They want to be told what will occur, how they should prepare, and that all will be well. We are not well designed and seems to live in uncertainty. Rousseau exaggerated only slightly when he said that when things are truly important, we prefer to be wrong than to believe nothing at all. People have to be told, demand to be told what's going to happen. And yeah. as a result, in populations, go, sorry, in civilizations going way back, you have these oracles who become figures, uh, important figures in important parts of civilization because they apparently can tell the future. Uh, he refers to the most revered oracles in the ancient Greek world, the high priestesses at the temple of Apollo at Delphi. To respond to a petitioner who had placed the question before her, the priestess would enter the inner sanctum and seat herself on a tripod erected over a crevice in the ground out of which inebriating gases were thought to rise. These fumes partially paralyzed her rational faculties, put her supposedly in a trance of receptivity that allowed the god Apollo to speak through her in cryptic remarks and riddles. As he put it, it was a very successfully successful startup and made Delphi a wealthy town. Uh, yeah, I mean, people want to know what's going well, to happen. I, I, especially well, as, so what is the point? Are you suggesting that uh, Fauci should be on a tripod pod somewhere over... Here, here, here's my point. I'm not telling anybody what to do, but here's what I think is happening. Okay. Again, this is Lilla. Professional forecasters know this about the future, and these are people like Fauci, people in that position, they know that they cannot predict the future. They give reports that lay out all the assumptions that went into their forecasts and the degree of statistical confidence what might have in particular estimates. But journalists and public officials don't read or comprehend the footnotes. And with the public baying for information, they understandably pass on the most striking estimates, pass on the most striking estimates just to get through the day. Those estimates never are accurate. They never come true. And as a result, the public's confidence in both the news media and the government declines. It's all a game. It's all a cycle. People demand to come up with an expedition. What's going to happen? How many people? Whatever. And the numbers get pulled out and they're wrong. They're always wrong. And then people say, what the heck's going on? No, they don't. They, well, they should. No, they actually don't. What about the USA concept? Uh, the United States of Amnesia concept? Yes. yes. Well, there is a quote, the Gore Vidal quote. He says, USA stands for United States of Amnesia. I, I, I would say that people, I think you're 100% correct. People want some kind of predictions. They want something to seize onto. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, but I don't think uh, people could go so crazy when they're wrong. They just move on to the next prediction. Well, you know, you, you again, know, you've hit it, it right, Ms. Granger. Here's the actual quote from the article. The press and the public turn to fresher faces, who of course offer the same absurdly precise predictions. Not for nothing did Gore Vidal call for the United States of amnesia. I think right. that's exactly what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, but you know, people like Fauci, are, well, he's not making predictions. No. Okay, he's, he's, he he's is making recommendations of behavior yeah. right. based on you know projections. This could happen okay? if we do this. Um, who knows? So you know, this could happen. So in order to avoid that. We should right. do this, this, and this, right. you know. And then it's, you know, modified each day according to... But, but, but how many times have we seen the I mean, headline in the paper being a prediction? 
this is going to happen. There's this number. The, the new model says this. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's all nonsense. Right. And then we forget and they give us the next one. Right, exactly. But we crave, you know, crave it. we yeah. crave that information. That's why Delphi there, was no, such a successful startup. No, yeah. People need to have that experience. It's crazy, yeah. isn't it? And that's why everybody is reading newspapers, you know, Watching the news, etc. And, and the, and the news media that. is totally complicit with that. I mean, uh, they feed into that's that. That's their job. They yeah. know that's, that's what people want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. They're just dishing it up. Right. The latest and the greatest. Well, okay. You know? That's the cycle. And once in a while trying to explain it. But uh, not an easy job. Which is not an easy job? You know, presenting all these predictions. Well, no, it's... it's so, I mean, it's because what really, are you going to do? I, I have, understand what you're saying. I'm not sympathetic with... Well, they, they, look, the article does go on to say the news media has nothing to report in many cases. All they can do is give the latest public interest story and show some little thing about some happy uh, person who survived or some family who's bereft when somebody passes away or some people who celebrated the wedding by having signs with the cars going by. That's what they're reduced to. It's that or uh, a lot of it is filled by these predictions. Yeah, but since they're not making the predictions, they're, they're delighted online. to do that. Yeah, they can say, "Oh, well, that's exactly and right. now." And, and he, this fellow says, "Actually, people come to him. The news media comes to him and asks him to make predictions." And he says, "I, you know, I have no idea what's going to happen." And they say, "Come on, don't you know your lines? You got to have something for us." Yeah, right. So uh, it is kind of a crazy, crazy thing. Anyway, I, I agree that no one knows, but there's a positive aspect of no one knows. Okay. No, one knows. that doesn't mean the worst is going to happen. That just means you don't know. Okay. Okay. And that's the uncertainty. It's like this. This makes it sound totally trivial, but in a sense, this is how I learned to deal with uncertainty. I take New Jersey Transit for thirty years. All right. They don't know. So when they make an announcement, the train is stopped. We're completely stopped. There's no operations. It could be as long as ninety minutes. It's more than once I've been sitting next to someone right, in New Jersey yeah, Transit. Really, trust me, no one's interested in this. Listen, okay. and they say to no me, "No one is it." Let me just say this: it's, it's never good. Let me finish the sentence, okay? And they say to me, "Is it really going to be ninety minutes?" And I say to them, "No, it could be five minutes." They don't know. No okay, one knows. All right, got it. Got it. No one knows. Moving right along, it's a I, po- I, I walked into that one. All right, it's a I positive apologize. Experience. Right. I apologize so to we the did see a movie audience. Yesterday. We saw a movie yesterday. We saw The Trip to Greece. The Trip to Greece. Uh, and that is the uh, movie starring uh, Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon. They've made four movies now. They the, the deal is generally they go to a trip to a foreign country. They've gone to Spain. They've gone to Italy. Uh, and, uh, England. They, England, yes. And they do uh, talk. And uh, to each other, and they're you know they're pretty funny talking to each other. Well, they and go it's, and it's a travel. They go from restaurant to restaurant. Yes, that's true too. It, trying the food, yeah. and it, it's basically it's as you said a travel log. A travel log, and yet I will come up the same. I'll just read this review one sentence from the Wall Street Journal. Joe Morgenstern. What was great at the outset, super smart banter coupled with sensational celebrity impressions is still pretty darn good. And I think that's true. I enjoyed it. I know it yeah. got mixed reviews. Manola Dorgas didn't go for it, uh, but uh, at the times. But uh, I liked it. What do you think? Yeah, I thought I thought it was fine. Okay. You know, it was you know beautiful scenery. Yes, it's in Greece. You can't beat Greece, right? You know, and they go yeah, to Delphi. 
Yeah, they, oh, that's right. They did go to the Delphi. They talked so about they, the Oracle so of Delphi. Tied into your uh, and, and Oracle. They sort of gave a scatological version of the Oracle of Delphi. The food looks uh, yes. amazing. Yes. So, um, you know, and there's a little bit of a storyline. Yes. Uh, to... Enough to tie it together, enough to give a story an arc and cause you to think of these as real people. Yeah. But and... it's, it's perfectly... Delightful way to spend an hour or so. Yes, that's exactly right. Watching these guys. And they're amusing. I think they're more amusing to probably British people than American people, but... But we did, I will say... Because some of the humor was inside baseball. Yes, in in the sense that, uh, yes, Great Britain could be called inside. The point is that uh, they did do some impressions of English personalities. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, the old joke that says, someone stands up to do impressions, says, all right, first impression, I'm doing my Uncle Frank. They do the impression and people just look at them blankly. That's what it was like. But uh, I will say in terms of generation, we watched it with Granger and Nico, different generation, and uh, they enjoyed it. Okay. All right. So there we go. Four thumbs up. Um, There was an article about... uh, (laughs) Well, I should say, uh, and Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon, we saw Steve Coogan and Stan and Ollie, but probably what you don't remember... You know, he played Stan Laurel. He was good at that. Uh, we saw him in Philomena. No, I remember that. Everybody remembers that. Oh, well, excuse me. This is a movie with Judy Dench. But the, the funny thing in the movie was, at a certain point, they have a swim race. Yeah. All right. In, in the movie you, yesterday. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And actually, seeing two middle-aged, middle-aged men in a swim race oh, you're, you're, from, uh, you know, from above. Yes. I don't know if they had a drone or what they had, but uh, not not necessarily riveting <laughs> sports coverage right. there you know and they were flailing uh, a little bit they, yeah um but clearly bryden was the better swimmer right and then i reminded you we had seen him in a swimming movie right um you know it's called called uh, swimming with with men swimming with men about, so apparently about... he's got a thing going <laughs> it was that was a movie i think we mentioned uh was about uh, men's synchronized swimming right uh, that's a whole other story. But that was a pretty good movie, too. Uh, they're both pretty funny. Uh, Bryden, in particular, was funny in this movie. Uh, okay. Um, here's an article that I was surprised when I started reading it. I never thought I'd get into it, but I did. It's an article about Susie Orman, uh, who gives uh, financial advice. Yeah, uh, I don't know that much about her. Yeah, I know more I, about I know her once in a while I turn on the, um, you know, the NPR not the NPR. Yeah. The uh, PBS. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm dying to see something. And it's been uh, um, replaced by Susie Orman giving a great talk about financial something or other. And she seems great and she's very enthusiastic and the crowd loves her. Yeah. I'm just not oh, usually I, I don't looking to kick back. I can't say she's great or not, but I've never no, watched no, her for 90 seconds. I can't turn the channel. They're on the edge of their seats. I know they are, but I can't turn the she's channel. She's a great personality. Fast okay. enough when I see yeah. that. I can't turn the channel fast enough. What's well, she's an entertainer, Dan. Well, I guess These so. shows are about entertainment. Well, again, I learned all about her. So here's her deal. Uh, she she uh, had made a career out of giving this financial advice, but really where it really starts is she had uh, you know a, a failed business, she had a failed rest, restaurant business, and she had invested money and then lost her money, and she had given she thought she had savings of fifty thousand dollars or some some fairly substantial amount, and gave it to her financial analyst, her broker, if you will, 
And when then push came to shove, she went to get the money and the guy put the money all into options and lost all the money for her. <laughs> and this told her two things. Uh, number one, um, she said that uh, uh, she can't, uh, you can't trust anybody with money, particular men, as she puts it. Uh, you know, uh, you can't, well, the example is you can't trust your husband with money. Women fake orgasms, men fake their finances is her conclusion about finances. But the point is, so she learned that you can't trust someone else implicitly with their money, number one. Number two, that anyone can be a financial analyst. Then anyone mm-hmm. can be a financial mm-hmm. advisor. Okay. So she trained to become that. And that became her career. Yeah. And uh, then she went to write a book about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, she wasn't really uh, catching fire with that until she met the right agent. And she went in to, to meet this agent. And the agent said to her, first thing she said to her is, um, uh, you should lose 30 pounds. And Susie said, oh, this is a woman who speaks her mind. That appealed to Susie Woman. And, and she, then Susie Orman said to her, yeah. I can't write. And That's right. Susie Orman said, I can't write. Well, she said two things. said, I'm a, you want to know two things. I'm a lesbian and I can't write. And the woman said, well, lesbian, I don't know about that. But can't write, that's a great thing you just said to me because I have all kinds of writers that I work with and you at least have the self-knowledge that they don't. You know you can't write because <laughs> none of them can write. And she started writing these pamphlets and books and then it went to the television show. But her her... Advice is pretty much common sense. It's just conservative finances. She tells yeah. people you can't afford the things you're buying. People apparently right. will call and say, I want to buy X, I want to buy Y. And she says, people know that they can't afford right. it. Before they call me, they know. And yet they call me. And I, and then she says to them in response to rhetorical questions, should I buy it? No. That would be yeah. stupid. Don't do that. Yeah. And that's her And then career. when they screw up, she says, she has I told no you problem. So. Yeah. She's telling her, I told you so. And yeah. this has resulted in a big career that uh, allowed her five years ago to retire to the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. And uh, you would yeah, think... Yeah, she seems to have a nice life there. That's right. You would think that's the end of the story, but it's not because, as they say, uh, people are now clamoring for financial advice in these tough right. times. She's so she has set up... They had a picture of her with her little at-home-in-the-Bahamas uh, set, yeah, TV set. Right. And uh, so, yeah, I guess this goes under the heading of fun article. Fun artist. She's a fun, funny personality. I don't know that she's that amazingly knowledgeable or anything. But, right. Uh, right. But, but uh, a fun okay. and interesting personality. I yeah. mean, there are little anecdotes about uh, her driver yeah. dealing with her in Miami and so on and so forth. She's it's, a piece of work. Just, yeah, it's, yeah. But uh, she gives, and she, you know, her big thing now is, and, and this is one of the things she comes back and I told you so. She says people should have eight months worth of money in the bank to handle right. eight months in terms of emergency. And now all the people she's dealing with are people who ignored that advice. Right. And so much so that she feels, use your credit cards if you have to, but develop that eight months of backup. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, obviously that looks like genius advice now. It does. If you don't it? have the eight months worth. So yeah. she's back. Susie Orman is back. <laughs> and you know what else is back, Tamsin? Hot dogs. That's correct. Well, we've been, we are just like Everyone else. We are. we are just like everyone else. Exactly right. We have been heavily into hot dogs. Heavily into hot dogs. In the, for the last month. And, and we don't, we're not embarrassed about it. We're not, who's embarrassed we about it? Build a fire in the backyard. Oh, yeah. We cook them outside. We, we cook them that. outside. We're yeah. not like everybody else like that. We're cooking right. hot yeah, dogs we're not, outside. We're not throwing them we're, in the microwave no, or something We're pioneers. Like that. No. We're out there no, cooking we, hot dogs We've been dogs having on a, cookouts. On a stick. And, and the thing that was wanted was hot dogs. Right. Okay? And we have... So it turns out... Yeah. 
Everybody wants hot dogs. Right. They're flying off the shelves. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so there's a, a fun story in the New York Times about two brothers who um, actually start a hot dog business. They started it a few a couple of years ago, right? right? The um, what is it? What are their names? I don't even. Oh, Michael and Joe Quinn. Yeah. Okay. And uh, it turns out Coney Island hot dogs start with a guy named Charles Feltman. Mm-hmm. Okay. In 1867. Right. All right. By 1871, he has an enormous. Um, it's not even a stand. It's like a place. Right. It's two city blocks right. they have long a, on Coney they Island. They can serve 10,000 hot dogs they at can, a time. Yeah. I, I don't see it as possible, but no. fine. Okay. Um, so huge he, business. Yeah, he's got a huge business. And then in like... I mean, how nine, many people lived in New York then? They're all eating a hot dog of his at the same time. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, he did well. <laughs> but then one of his employees leaves. Yes. To start his own business. And his this name is... In 1915. Is his, Nathan. Nathan is his first name. And he see, sells the hot dogs for a nickel less. Boom. Developments are history. Okay. It's just like yeah, that. Yeah, they, they're in business for quite a few years. I mean, mm-hmm. they, will, they, will, they won't shut down until like 1954. 70 years later, they're history. <laughs> but, um, but anyway. Yeah. So somehow the Quinn's grandfather right. had come into... The secret Feltman recipe. Right. Okay. And these two brothers uh, eventually, you know, um, make their way into starting the business. They had talked about, there were three brothers originally. One was lost in 9-11. Right. And uh, they had talked about having some kind of business together. And, and, uh, you know, at a certain point, these guys say, let's just do it. Okay. And um, they... uh, um, 2015, like a hundred years after Nathan right. uh, opens up, um, they open up. They open up, and yeah. they've got little pop-ups. But they start uh, slowly. They, yeah, and uh, but what's interesting, you know, they begin to catch on. Actually, they're doing well. Okay, um, and then the pandemic hits. The pandemic hits. What's interesting, the the one brother, I think it's Michael. Right. Has a military background. Right. And, he and is, he's all about preparedness. Right. He starts making arrangements for the, you know, responding to the pandemic in, in, in January. Right. Okay. So he locks up his suppliers. And so they're going to be ready to go no matter what. Right. So they, you know, they had, you know, they had moved into a larger scale of production anyway. They were into mass production. But uh, you're right. He locks in suppliers. He he makes all these. Plans. But even when he does that, they don't know. I mean, let's say you. So they're thinking in February, certainly in March, pandemic. Is that good news for their business at least? Or right. Bad news. Right. They're going to lose because all the business. ballparks, et cetera, right. are shutting down, right. and you don't, you know, and Coney Island shut down. Right. So uh, they don't know. But it turns out everybody wants hot dogs. Right. Number one, it's because it's easy to cook. Yeah. Right. And it will last in your refrigerator for 60 days. It will last in your freezer for 10 months. So it's like the perfect pandemic hoarding food. Okay. Yeah. And uh, sales go through the roof. Yeah. Okay. So they did selling hot dogs. In April, they did 170% uh, increase over March. And, uh, you know, they yeah. seem like they're going to continue. It's a pandemic here, success story. It's not. It's. 
It's a pricey hot dog. Is that right? Did you know that? No. Oh, yeah. Did you look it up? Oh, yeah. Huh? I went online. Because uh, you can buy, like, I don't know, nine pounds at a time, three yeah. pounds at a time, uh, whatever. Two fifty per hot dog. Wow. Yes. Wow. Yes. I, I thought we loosened our change person went for a dollar a hot dog recently at the yes. supermarket. So we've been, we, yeah, we thought we were dining. Uh, yeah, but you know, you can be a big shot for a hot dog. So I, I, I would try it at least once. I, I, well, I they're beef. Shot. Okay. Yeah, they're all beef. They're beef. So, um, you know, and he was dealing with like, it, he, it, they actually um, locked in a bunch of beef. Right. That Ranchers. they have, right. uh, they're freezing. And they were a little nervous when uh, these other plants were shutting down, but that's mostly pork, like Smithfield. Um, well, it's funny. The pork plant. So, so Smithfield owns Nathan's, right? And so they have. But Nathan's from, is made of beef, also. But so. also, Smithfield clearly is prioritizing the hot dogs for Nathan's. They would they would rather be producing Nathan's hot dogs than some of their other uh, products, because that's I don't what know the bacon. Uh, they can do more than bacon? one thing. They can do more than one thing. No one can live without bacon. Dan. All right, all right. Sorry, I said that. I'm going to upset you. But the point: I'm going to look out for Feldman's hot dogs. I don't know where they're distributed. Maybe we'll never see them. But two fifty. You can hot get dogs. online and, and you can't and order buy hot dogs them. online. You can't. I think that's Why crazy. not? Ordering hot dogs online? Yeah, no, it's the 21st century. Oh, I forgot what century. Sorry, you're going to drive to Coney Island. I forgot what century. I, I don't know. It just it seems a strange thing. I mean, how does it stay cold? Oh. Okay, dry ice. I think you're going to tell me. All right. So let's talk about something I know more about than shipping hot dogs, which is bicycles. All right. So uh, we, I decided we need another bicycle. Or we, we decided we need another bicycle. We have a few people around here, and we don't have a bicycle for everybody. And uh, I even how just, many bicycles does a guy need? I, it wasn't for me. It's for somebody else. But but my, my point is, it's what what one plus the amount that's in your garage right now. Uh, okay. That's what the bicycle guys. That's said. not what this is about. Because okay. I'm not looking to buy. You, you a fancy always bicycle. need another bicycle. I'm buying this bicycle because yeah, your bicycles are crap. Yes, thank You're you. riding crap. I understand that. So I wanted to. <laughs> you solved this problem how? Yeah. This I, is a great story. So people. I was going to get. I wanted to get a new bicycle, but uh, I couldn't. That's the point of the story. Okay. The article called "Pandemic you Has Emerged." You only wanted to get a new bicycle because you couldn't. No, no. You no. go. Ah, can't do it. Pandemic has Americans snapping up bicycles. I would be spending the big bucks shortage. right now. My point is. But you can't get them. That's exactly what happened. Not my fault. My wallet was open. I was ready to buy a bicycle. Call it costing several hundred dollars. And I was sh- shocked that you can't get one. You can't get a bicycle. And I said, what the heck is going on? So I went to my bicycle guy. We all have a bicycle guy. And uh, I I actually saw him and he had to fix something. And I said, oh, he said, oh, I hope find something. We no problem. He emails me two days later. Can't find any bicycles. He had one exemplar. It was clearly the wrong thing. Uh, forget it. So I said to him, no, I'll find a used bicycle. And I'll manage on that until the supply opens up. And then I had the exciting uh, adventure of getting on Facebook through you and looking at Facebook Marketplace. And that's a whole story about how you deal with all these pictures and figuring out what's a decent bicycle. And then you drive an hour and a half to Tom's River and you see this guy in this down and out place and you say to yourself, I don't know if I need the bicycle, but this guy needs the money. So I have to buy the bicycle because he needs the money. You're fantasizing all of this. But uh, but the bus, so I bought a used bicycle with very little money and it's actually pretty decent. It will certainly tide us over. But I didn't imagine the shortage of bicycles. The Times says, 
that you cannot buy a bicycle except extreme premium models. Or put another way, you can't buy a model that's under $1,000. They're just not I anywhere. think it's even higher. Under the, I've heard it's hard to buy a bike. That's under $1,500 or $2,000? Yes. It's just hard to buy a bike generally. And the reason is, there are a lot of reasons, including that in China, there's still a serious shortage of labor and component parts, and China's part of the manufacturing and supply chain. You just can't get it. And the result is, because of this interruption in the supply chain, you're not going to be able to get bicycles probably until July. They'll breed some bicycles. People are pre-ordering now. They'll get those bicycles in the middle of June, maybe. But in terms of walking into a bicycle store and seeing anything in the way of selection, you're looking at mid to late July, which is crazy, right? Especially because the summer right. you need the bicycles and especially now. So I solved the problem. Have I mentioned that I got on the Facebook marketplace <laughs> and I got solved the problem and I Dude, made a savvy purchase. What a revelation. And, and then, what a revelation. And then I brought the bicycle back to life in my little shop. I lubricated it and this bicycle woke up. You know, it sprang from the womb. It was uh, rejuvenated. And it's quite a functional bicycle now. I think, yeah. I think if you talk to my brothers, neither of them, neither of them have ever bought a new bicycle. Right. And uh, I think that's a normal thing to do is... Buy a used bicycle and fix it up. Or get one out of the trash and rebuild it and make it go. Let me tell you uh, something about normal. Let's go to the word normal. But I know you, I know you really enjoyed the negotiating... You know, no, I didn't enjoy it. Um, emailing all these people. Oh my God! On Facebook, that was and awful. <laughs> I mean, the there's one guy. I, I said, I asked the question. The guy said, "I've had it with you people. These questions." So, whoa, 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 what? What's that? Then he kind of cursed me out. It was fantastic. Uh, in terms of normal, I think it is normal for your brothers to buy a bicycle. That's kind of uh, marginal. And no one it up. said buy. But for an, no one said no, buy. Or right, to pick one up in the trash and bring it back to life. But for an Abuhoff. It is not normal to do that. And therefore, I stepped out of my lane and uh, picked up this reclamation project and brought it back to life, for which I should be receiving kudos, but apparently not here, not now. Oh, no. It's, I think it's marvelous. Thank you. I think it's just marvelous. And so innovative of you. Okay. Okay. That sounds very So sincere. pandemic. Um, you know, you know, we each do our own rising part. above. We each making do things work. What we can do, yeah, you know, to handle the uh, economic right. fallout. So there was an article. Uh, nothing fits not at all with what we've been talking about. But I was just struck by this, and I couldn't get it out of my head. There was an article about uh, Mount St. Helens, which was the volcano that erupted uh, in May of 1980. 1980, and this was in um, who is it in Washington State. Uh, yes. Yeah, Washington State. <laughs> between Did, Seattle and Portland. Were you not alive in 1980? I don't remember. I barely remember it. I knew it was a thing, and I knew afterwards people would talk about it. But to hear them talk about it now, it was such a monumental event that, listen to this, uh, the North Face, this is as described in the Times, the North Face of Mount St. Helens transformed into a fluid, rippling, pulsating, churning. It collapsed, shearing 1,300 feet off the summit, a volcanic cloud, incandescent with lightning bolts, rocketed through the sky, right? And the blast pushed a colossal volume of superheated volcanic matter out of Mount St. Helens at over 300 miles per hour. A thermal shockwave zipped across the land before a tsunami of debris cooking at 660 degrees Fahrenheit, traveling 17 miles from the summit in three minutes. 
you had people who were observing it, who were scientists, who were perched there because they knew something was going to happen at Mount St. Helens. And the uh, one of the desired perches was 5.2 miles from Mount St. Helens. Those people were wiped out. Right. Right? So you 50, said 57, 57 people died. People yeah. died. No yeah. one, uh, everyone knew something was going to happen, but they didn't know it would be like this. And it was just startling. Anyway, it's not something I was uh, terribly aware of or terribly familiar well, with. Well, I think you were a young lawyer. That's what it was. It was a catastrophic Working event. around the clock. Yeah. And I, yeah. it was just amazing. That's, so you talk about nature doing something, not being able to control nature and us having a sense of what could happen, but not a real good sense. That would be a primary example. Eruption okay. of a volcano. All right. So finally, here's something that Granger pointed out to us. Uh, Hal Wilner, a uh, record producer, a music producer, who worked on the Saturday Night Live and did their so-called sketch music uh, for years, passed away at the age of 64, uh, much loved by the musicians he worked with, including Elvis Costello, who gave a tribute. Um, but to us, uh, this is notable particularly because Hal Wilner was the producer of several uh, compilation albums, compilation uh, CDs, tributes sometimes, uh, dedicated to particular composers or particular studios, and he did organize and produce an album called Stay Awake, which was uh, a record which contained um, sort of reissues or redone recordings of classic Disney songs in 1988, which it turns out, number one, is the most well-known record that he did. Mm -hmm. Number two was actually a little bit of a sensation in that year, was uh, in the top 100, actually number 37, uh, rated by the English organization, which rates the uh, output of a particular year, 37 top quality album in 1988. In other words, it didn't go under the radar at all. Uh, and it was, a frankly, a record that we loved and that we bought. Yeah, and, and you called it a CD at first, but when we first bought it, it was Oh, that's vinyl. right. It was a record. Yeah. You're absolutely yeah. right. I, I didn't remember. No. So it's a it's a family favorite, and it's uh, the kind of odd versions right. of all these songs. They didn't, you know, um, they're pretty quirky. Yeah. and uh, But we, they resonated well, with us and our, our Bambinos. Right. Well, what Wilner did was, and they have a quote here from NRBQ's Terry Adams, he gets musicians together who wouldn't get together, but it always works. And that's what you had. You had this eclectic group of musicians. Yeah. You don't associate with Disney, but they were very popular. And, you know, Bonnie Raitt, Tom Waits, Suzanne Vega, Buster Poindexter, Aaron Neville, uh, James Taylor, Harry Nielsen, the Roaches, on and on. And some of those names were bigger in 1988 than they are now. Some still big names. I mean, huge, Herb Albert, Dr. John, yeah. all these but, people together. And they're not cute. I mean... Oh, no, they're real. Yeah, the Tom Waits is Tom Waits. Tom Waits. Pretty weird. Yeah, Tom um, Waits. So, but... Uh, what is that? Whistle While We Work was the Tom Waits. Yeah. And you have to yes. really work hard to figure out what song it is. <laughs> so, we could play that, but you wouldn't know what we were playing. Yeah. Uh, yeah so, but they were uh, fantastic. Some are soothing. Uh, you have Bonnie Raitt with uh, Baby Mine, which is a song from Dumbo. Yeah. You have James Taylor with Second Star from the Right, from yeah, uh, yeah. Peter Pan. And some are really rock songs. Right. And I was telling you, the one that really struck me and I remember the best is the one by David Johansson slash Buster Poindexter, originally from the New York Dolls, which was a recording of Castle in Spain from Babes in Toyland. Uh, 
which I thought was great. And I think we may attach that here so you can listen yeah. to it. Uh, but it was a fantastic album. It was real music, but it was a Disney song. So the kids loved it too, didn't they? Right, right. So, I mean, uh, it's in that category of something that, you know, you do get tired. When our kids were growing up, it was all about Raffi. Yeah. Right? Right. And there's only so much of kid music you can take. So uh, little excursions off into something. I mean, the Disney music is generally quite good. Right. Um, so it uh, you can survive it. Um, but uh, this was a nice little, you know, it's like one of those animations that appeals to adults on one level and kids on another. Yeah. Yeah. Stay awake. All right. So we'll leave you with that. And uh, have a happy Memorial Day. Yep. Uh, enjoy it. And until next week, this is Dan Abuhoff. And Tamson Granger with Tamson and Dan. Read the paper. Thanks. <laughs> Give a God. Blah, 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 blah. In our castle in Spain. Ha, 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 ha.